HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. Today's program is brought to you by the Museum of Food and Drink, sparking curiosity about food with exhibits you can eat. For more information, visit mofad.org. You're listening to Heritage Radio Network. We're a member-supported food radio network broadcasting over 35 weekly shows live from Bushwick, Brooklyn. Join our hosts as they lead you through the world of craft brewing, behind the scenes of the restaurant industry, inside the battle over school food, and beyond. Find us at heritageradionetwork.org. Hello, this is Dana Cowan, and you're listening to Speaking Broadly on Heritage Radio Network. On today's show, we'll hear from some remarkable women whose grit and determination, intelligence, and sense of humor have made them big successes. I'll be speaking to a world-famous chef who bluffed her way into her first cooking job, a student who defends the practice of unpaid student internships, and a master sommelier who moved through the ranks of the restaurant business from server all the way to beverage director. She's now running one of this country's greatest wine programs. So my first guest is Barbara Lynch, the Boston chef and restaurateur. I've known Barbara since 1996 when she was named a food and wine best new chef. Back in 1996, Barbara was at a restaurant called Galleria Italiana. And to be honest, back then, that restaurant was more known for its two owners from then because of the chef in the kitchen. But that team of mine at Food & Wine back in the day, they said, okay, yeah, she's a Southie, she's Irish, she's tough, but man, does she make incredible Italian food. So now, 20 years later, Barbara has her own empire, and she was just named one of Time Magazine's 100 Most Influential People. Welcome, Barbara. Hi, Dana. Thanks for having me. <laughs> I'm so happy to have you. I loved reading your memoir, um, Out of Line, Playing with Fire. I just, what a perfect title for your book. <laughs> I mean, I feel like you, you've been out of line since you stole pignoli nuts in the grocery store as a, as a kid. Right. But it, it's all paid off, right? Like your fearlessness. When I think about 
what you've been through and how you've just taken on every challenge that's come your way. I just think of you as this fearless lady. And I love this quote in your book where you say that you keep busting through doors, never stopping to worry about what lies on the other side. How did did your, like, just figured out, you know, I'm going to prove it to you kind of mentality, like, start? I I just think... If I thought about it, Dana, I don't think I'd open the door. You know, <laughs> <laughs> that's that's like I always say. Oh God, I did it just like Barbara Lynch style. Like I just say yes to it, and then um, I, I'm in it. And I'm like, what did I get myself into? Oh God! So tell us about uh, that first experience when you said you knew how to cook, and you're on that boat, and you're like, oh my God, how do I cook? What do I do now? Oh God, that was awful. Yeah, I lied. Uh, oh, you know, I didn't even know how to say Zabayon sauce. I called it Zamboni. <laughs> <laughs> and he believed me. I was like, okay, I'm making Quahog chowder. Um, I'm telling this guy, like, everything he wants to hear. I, I'm telling him I'm a cook at the St. Patolf Club. Uh, right now we're doing Dover Soul tableside, sweetbreads under a bell. I had no, you know, I, I, and, and, and I'm making Quahog chowder, and... Zabayon's, uh, Zamboni sauce. I'm thinking of like the thing that cleans the ice rink. Oh. Right. So, and, he, and he didn't figure it out. Like he didn't call you on it. He didn't call me on it. He didn't call for resume checks. I'm like, and he's ha- like, okay, you're hired. And I'm like, oh shit. Okay, uh, library. <laughs> so, <laughs> and that's and how you did it. At you- this restaurant called the Beef Tender. Learn how to like. Uh, cook meat, uh, perhaps butcher meat, maybe, you know, uh, like work the line for the first time in a very, very busy steak restaurant. And what made you think you could do it? And what made you want to do it? What made me think I couldn't do it? You know, I mean, <laughs> if I thought about it, I, I wouldn't do You know, if I even thought, if, if I even thought about what I was going to have to do, I wouldn't do it. But I didn't think about it. So yeah. I just did it. You did I, it. I think that's what I do. I, I've done that all my life, I guess. Well, and it's it's all turned out really, really well. Yeah. I, I was wondering whether the fact that you always found a way to, you know, figure it out, take the next step, and be really successful has in some way made Dana, you... when you came to my house for lunch, I'm like, what did I just do? Why did I say yes? You made me so nervous. <laughs> <laughs> but it was delicious. I mean, I I was embarrassed. I wanted more pasta. Pasta, pasta, pasta. Can I have uh, some more, Barbara? And you're like, I think you've actually wiped me out. There's no more pasta. <laughs> it, was, it was great. And meeting your family um, was also so special. Oh, but I was, I was wondering whether the approach that you took because you didn't have mentors your mentor was the library your mentor was the streets of boston just because that's where you learn to get it done and you know that um the honor code and all of that does that make you a better mentor and want to help other people succeed um i feel like it makes me a better person um it makes me um like an equal person. I'm not better than anyone else. I can play with a high gang and I can play with the lowest of the low and I can get along. And, you know, which I have that opportunity to in the restaurant industry. I can be relay in Chateau and I can be as casual as I want. Right. It doesn't make me any better than anybody else. I've been, and also I always had that, uh, that frame of mind. Well, if I don't succeed, what do I have to lose? I didn't have anything in the beginning. <laughs> and I know what suffering's like. 
um, and I know I know what ha- what having no food is like. I mean, sometimes we we used to have imaginary sandwiches. You know, it's just kind of like. Um, but I know what you know. What I know mostly is what it's like to be a kid in a housing project in the in the deep deep in the inner inner city where we don't get information that everybody you know that. When new development happens in cities, they're like, oh, but we have, you know, this for, for inner-city kids. But it's usually on the peripheral. It's not in the heart of the city and what we really need right. for kids to get up and out for single parents who work three jobs. I know what it takes. And you know what, all It just takes hope and dignity and a little more attention and a, little, and a lot more information has to be – has to get to the heart of this uh, – the inner inner city hope is really the key and I, think, I guess you were sort of born with hope you know being a boisterous family with um there was six kids and yeah. um of course a lot of that sounds like a struggle but i think there's always a lot of support and a lot of love with um your southie friends that you're so loyal to they're still really really great oh. friends of yours oh my god we're so friends they have they haven't changed you know they they're still we laugh. I mean, they're just the same. I am still the same, but a little, well, I'm a little safer now. I don't take as many stupid risks. (laughs) (laughs) And I pay, you know, I pay, I have to pay taxes now because it's, everything's legit. But, uh, (laughs) and I know that you paid back the Pignoli debt, um, you know, from, from back in the day, which, oh yeah, my Catholic guilt, you know, I had to just do it. Coming on strong. you grew up in the projects, and you grew up with imaginary sandwiches. And yet, when you started cooking, you you know you taught yourself from books, and you ended up with a very beautiful, elegant, simple, strong cuisine that almost sounds like it's in contrast to the way that you brought up. Is there a relationship between sort of the the food and the energy of the, your childhood and then the food you decided to create and make your life's work? Well, it's an in-between of um, what I knew I could handle and do right versus uh-huh. I couldn't strive too far because I didn't think I could handle it. I, You know, I've always had that goal in mind to be like Elaine Ducasse or Joelle Rubichon, but I, I wasn't really ready for that. I mean, that's going to take years. I, I mean, that's a master, right? Will I ever get there? I, I don't know. But I didn't want it to be too out there, too fancy. Too. I'm, I, that's not me. Right. I'm, I'm not perfect. I don't. I don't plan on ever being perfect because then I stop learning. And I need. I want to learn more. I'm. I'm still that curious little. You know, I'm curious. I. I, I want to. I don't want to be perfect, and I want to leave room to do what other what other purposes i feel like i have uh i have i have a purpose to fulfill you know um and what do you so think what do you think I, that i, I what, want the food to I, I really want you know i want the person from the projects to be able to come in and eat dinner and, and not be t- intimidated but i want it to be from my heart i want it to i want it to be i want it to taste great and your food does taste great. When I had the dinner they prepared at Chef's Club just the other night as part of your book tour, I was reminded how spectacular your pasta is. Oh. It was a strosbretti with um, the rabbit. braised rabbit and rosemary. And rabbit Green. isn't necessarily the um, the first thing I order on a menu. And after having that, I thought, oh, my God, next time this is the dish that I want. How did you choose that dish as one of your favorite dishes? Oh, my God, because it's <laughs> Rabbit, rosemary, and green olives, and strawberry is like heaven. 
love. I, I, I like that's. I love that dish. I've, I've made it forever, and that's. It's kind of homey. It's kind of what I want. What I want to eat when I'm really. I want to feel good. You know. Right. It, it and ha- it's so hard to cook in other people's kitchen, and it's one of those dishes that actually comes out really great, and I don't have to worry too much. Believe it or not, I'm still nervous cooking, so <laughs> I, I want to make sure everyone's happy. I know that you're, one of your great um, desires is to you know, create the community and, and make the happiness around you. But what you were saying that you, know, you want to save room for your sense of purpose and living out like a more of a sense of purpose, do you have a sense of what that is right now, or are you still discovering that, or...? Working on it. It's going to take a village, you know, like um, helping women, you know, who want to start their own business or change the restaurant formulas. It's just not going to be, we can't do, we cannot keep it going this way. It's just not going to be feasible. Um, What do you feel? There's a lot. I I mean, there's a lot going on that uh, I want to do. Um, You know, we're always fighting for better schools and better lunches in the public school systems. I think. We're doing a great job, but I think it has to, it just has to go higher than this. We need more lobbyists in the White House that want to fight for children, even though there's no money. Like, kids don't have money, so who's going to fight for them? That kind of thing. It, it, it just has to – shit has to happen. <laughs> and, Barbara, I believe you are going to be the one to make it happen. Thank you. <laughs> Thank you so much for being on the show. I can't wait to see you again and eat pasta someplace. All right. Together. I'm sure I'll see you soon. Yeah. Thanks, Dana. Thanks for having me, right. and have a great day. Thanks. Right. Ciao. Bye. Ciao. That was the amazing chef restaurateur, Barbara Lynch, who has so much love in every bite of her pasta. Next up, we have Sophia Hampton. Sophia Hampton is not a name that you probably know. Why? Because she is my intern here at uh, Speaking Broadly. She is a student at NYU. And she also works in fantastic restaurants. She's working at Cosme and Atla. You probably know them because of their star chefs, Daniela Soto Ines and Enrique Olvera. So Sophia and I were talking the other day about Amanda Klute's comment on Speaking Broadly. Amanda is the editor-in-chief of Eater. And she made an impassioned um Speech is too strong a word, but impassioned speech about stagiaires and how stagiaires, which is unpaid interns in restaurants, should indeed be paid and that there's um, some real problems with this practice. And Sophia had a different point of view. Sophia, tell me, what, what, what did you do your first stage? Because you have staged in restaurants before. Yeah, so I did... Well, hi, Dana. Hi. Um, So I did my first stage at a restaurant in Westport, Connecticut called The Wealth. Um, It's a really excellent um, seafood-focused, creative cuisine-type restaurant, and it was the best one in our town. So I decided I wanted to start working in restaurants, and I just showed up one day and asked if I could help out and... That's how that's how my first stage started, and it, I I started there when I was sixteen, and I didn't leave until I went to college, so I was nineteen. And so you think that uh, being unpaid in the kitchen actually has some advantages, and I, I wanted you to just talk about what are those advantages? Right. So I think that being an unpaid stage gives you 
the ability to grow in a way where you're, if you're being paid, there's a set of expectations that you have to meet every single day. So all of your energy is focused on on meeting those expectations and if possible, exceeding them. Whereas if you're a stage, you can just keep working and you're able to make mistakes and then learn from those mistakes without really the threat of like your main source of income being taken away. Um, so, so for, and I think that, um, is it true that as a stage, you had a more interesting, varied set of tasks to do? Yeah, you have, you're not, I mean, you're not really touching, I wasn't allowed really to touch the food until like six months in, um, and I was unloading deliveries, uh, shelling peas, we would get these little snails called periwinkles in, and one of my jobs was to clean, well, for lack of a better word, the poop off of them. (laughs) What was your nickname? uh, Go ahead, you can tell me what your nickname was. My nickname was shit sack because that was one of my jobs was to clean the shit sack off of the tiny periwinkle, tiny periwinkles, and it would take hours. And there wasn't really any way to do it really fast because you had to keep the snail intact. Oh my goodness! But, but like it was my job, and no one had really done, no one else in the kitchen was doing it, so it just seemed like I was going really slow. And I'm sure I could have gone faster had I really had experience, but it was, it was the most tedious most labor-intensive task for like a $12 piece of toast (laughs) and and it was so I look back on it and I'm never gonna forget that and it was so valuable in terms of like work ethic and just doing something until it's finished that I would I'm so happy I had that opportunity that's such a great uh, takeaway from that kind of task because the opposite could also be true where you feel like I did something that was, you know, benefited one piece of toast, but uh, took a lot of my time. Um, but And then when you're actually paid and in the kitchen, the stakes are higher, right? Yeah, th- they're way higher. But the, like the reason that I look back on that and I, I think it was such a great experience was because I was hired as a line cook there eventually. And I don't think I've ever spoken to a stage who actually wanted to do that, who didn't end up getting hired somewhere. So it's like it led to something. So and then I then I was paid and then I I had made a number of mistakes. I made so many mistakes. And I still made mistakes when I was paid, but it was like I had this history um, already built up with the restaurant and the kitchen and I had made relationships with the chefs and stuff. So then it wasn't like I was just coming in hired off the street. It was like I had experience and um, and then and then I was a cook and it was it was high pressured like any kitchen but um, it it was definitely I don't know how it would have been for me had I just been hired as a cook and hadn't been staged. And what do you yeah. think of the one of the major critiques of uh, the unpaid restaurant stage or internship, which is that um, it creates a, a certain hiring inequality because only a certain kind of person can afford to um, to not be paid, and then that shapes the labor that's in the kitchen. What do you think about that? I thought that that I mean it's such a valid critique, and I don't have the answer, but I also think that it everybody should work at least i don't know two months in the service industry no matter who you are because it'll just make everyone better people um so i so 
And I don't think, I think it should be like a service requirement almost. Cause it, and so I, I don't know where, it's just, sir, restaurants are such a, it's such a hard thing to try and restructure because there's such an established system. But I just know that the stage, the concept of stodging and putting in your hours and paying your dues is so valuable to the workforce and it gives people such this hardened experience that you're not going to get any other way if you're asking to be paid in that way that I don't know how to I don't know I don't know what it would be like if you were paying them I think that thank you so much that's such an eloquent um, explanation of the the power of staging and the power of working in the service industry. Um, so thank you so much, Sophia, for this and for all of the work that you do with me on um, Speaking Broadly. I really appreciate it. Of course. We're thank gonna, you, Dana. Thank you. <laughs> We're going to take a quick commercial break here. And when we come back, my guest will be Joan Rodolf, who's the beverage director for McGuire Mormon Hospitality Group in Austin, Texas. We'll also be doing the first ever Speaking Broadly ticket giveaway for the Food Book Fair this weekend. So stay with us. We'll be right back. Hi, I'm Dave Arnold, the host of Cooking Issues on the Heritage Radio Network. We all know and love Chinese takeout dishes like General Tso's chicken and egg rolls. But here's the thing. Even though we call it Chinese food, it's not like the food you'd find in China. What's the story behind this cuisine? And how did it become so popular that you can find a Chinese-American restaurant in nearly every town in the country? The answers may surprise you. Visit the Museum of Food and Drink in Brooklyn and see our newest exhibition, Chow, Making the Chinese American Restaurant. Chow engages visitors with compelling accounts of how Chinese immigrants overcame racism and created Chinese American cuisine. Discover the science behind the flavors of your favorite takeout dishes, feast on rotating tastings developed by the country's most talented Chinese American chefs, and try your hand at writing your own fortune, which will be baked into actual cookies by a 1,500-pound fortune cookie machine. What better way to learn, connect, and eat? You can visit Chow at the Museum of Food and Drink on Fridays through Sundays from noon to 6. Tickets and more information can be found at mofad.org. Welcome back. You are listening to Speaking Broadly on Heritage Radio Network, and this is your host, Dana Cowan. Joining me today from Austin, Texas, is Joan Rodell, the beverage director for McGuire Mormon Hospitality Group. That group owns some of Austin's best and most fun restaurants, including Lambert's and Jeffrey's and a restaurant that is named after June herself, called June's All Day. Welcome, June. Hi. Thank you so much for having me. I'm so happy to have you, but I also want to know, did I butcher your last name? No, it was perfect. Oh, that's so good. Um, so you have worked in so many incredible restaurants in Austin, from uh, the Driscoll to Uchi with Tyson Cole to Key with Paul Key. You've risen steadily through the ranks. And your master sum, which is so impressive, I cannot believe that there are only 149 master psalms in all of America, and you are one of them. 
it's crazy. It's cr- it's actually crazy on so many levels. But when I think about all of the things that you've accomplished, and there are so many, I just it feels to me like you're a really hard worker and a very determined person. All those hours of studying, all those hours of service. I'm I'm curious what drives you or what motivates you. Oh man, I think the fear of being bored and the fear of like not not feeling fulfilled. So there's always something to be better at. There's always something to achieve. And I don't know. I, I honestly, sometimes I don't know exactly what it is I'm facing, but I just know that it feels good to be busy and to have even small senses of accomplishment every day. And then as you accomplish them, you're always like, I like, you know, traversing mountains and looking for the next one. So if I, if I'm not at work, I feel very weird. (laughs) Um, and so do you, do you live your life by a checklist, like either mental or physical that at the end of the day it's checked off and you know, you've accomplished something. Is it that kind of thing? It is. It is. I mean, mental and, um, very, very physical. I write a checklist every day and sadly every day it's never completely done. (laughs) So I turn the page of my notebook every day and then it always has something already on it when I wake up. But I think that that just keeps me going, you know? I mean, sometimes there are moments where I feel like that checklist is in, in the in my throat, you know, it's just kind of just sitting there and I feel the anxiety of things not having been done, but it also, you know, there's that fear of that blank page one day, right? kind of, I don't know what that would mean. That's so interesting that because sometimes a blank page means that you get to write your own story and sometimes a blank page means you're just stunned into doing nothing. Um, Mm -hmm. I, I, I know that you are going to go to law school, and and but then you took a left turn into hospitality. How did you make that decision? It was a it was a pretty wide left turn. <laughs> I just didn't even realize that I was making. I mean, I think a lot of times, you know, people do fall into the service industry whenever you're going into higher education. I had to do it to pay the bills, be able to kind of sustain life, um, and the flexibility of hours allowed me to just keep going, um, work full-time, and go to school full-time. So I ended up really just liking it, and I think that it took all of those years and finally graduating and then also, you know, applying to law school and getting accepted to realize that I've just been doing the things that I actually enjoyed. But, you know, at the time it was in the aughts, like the early aughts into 2006 or so, where really it wasn't like a legitimate thing to say, I'm going to be in the hospitality industry, especially in Austin. Uh It was still very, very small and emerging. And I mean, I'm a pretty competitive and ambitious person. And it's hard to say, "Uh, I really like waiting tables, but there's a (laughs) sense of fulfillment in hospitality and like really showing people a really great time. And, and I just, I had to grow up a little bit and realize who I was and, and be, be smart enough, maybe brave enough to admit to myself that, you know, I didn't need to go into some idealized, like, law firm. I, I would have been a horrible attorney. I would have been, I, I probably would have been a good attorney, but I probably would have been way less happy. <laughs> well, uh, choosing 
happiness, I think, is always a good goal. Um, yeah, I think so, too. <laughs> so w- when you were a, a server, you learned there's a lot of lessons that you learned, I feel, that you've carried with you through um, through the profession as, and as you've grown. Like, what were some of those foundational lessons that have stood you in such good stead? I mean, you you have to realize it's not about you. That's uh-huh. it. It's just, I think it's a really great lesson every day because, you know, it's very easy to make your life about you because you're there the whole time. <laughs> <laughs> um, and, and it's one of those things where, you know, when you are in the hospitality industry, when you're serving, it really is easy to get into the zone and realize, man, every single person on this planet is having their own narrative. And if you just take a moment to listen to them, you can really change someone's day. And that's a really, I think, great lesson that I, I still to this day forget to tell myself the moment I step out of a service or or, or a busy, you know, restaurant. I just immediately kind of recede back into what's going on with yourself, with myself. And also, you never want to piss off the dishwasher. That's like number one. (laughs) I believe that at home, too, because the dishwasher is my husband. So I I, I never want to piss him off because I'm happy to cook, but not really happy to to clean up so much. Um, (laughs) And I I think the larger lesson, seriously, though, is true. No matter what your work environment is, anytime you make it about you, if you're the leader, uh, you lose the following of your team, right? Um, and in the case mm-hmm. of hospitality, you, you lose the, the patience um, of your guest or you, you lose sight of uh, what you're trying to accomplish, which is to give them a really great, great time. You, um, yeah. I know that you worked with Paul Key. Um, that was one of the groups you worked with. And Paul, um, whose restaurant key was extremely well regarded and he has, um, food trucks, but he also has had enormous personal challenges with, um, drugs and an arrest. And I'm wondering from being inside that organization and can you tell me about running his group and what that was like? Not probably the right way to describe your job there. Yeah. Oh, no, for sure. I mean, you know, I was uh, the director of operations for the group, so there's a lot of different things. I think we opened, you know, the the food trucks turned into brick and mortars, and those we opened two right away, even before he finally opened. So we were just constantly on the go, um, like really erratic as, in terms of what we were doing. But I will say that the most amazing thing about working for that group is that somehow the no matter how disorganized we were the employees there were just extremely self-motivated and it's really hard to find i mean and perhaps it's one of those things like you know there's like those parental philosophies where like you know no matter what you do your child is going to turn out to be your child or there's you know <laughs> the the orchids where you have to say like okay you have to nurture this child as much as possible and i feel like we were in a field of daffodils that no matter what we threw at them they were just like wonderful daffodils wow. and those, those guys are completely ambitious and that's it and and i think it has to do with the persona and the aura and and the intensity that Paul brought, like no matter what his personal personal problems were, the intensity that he brought when he was in the kitchen and when he was cooking was really 
it, it turned into mythology, you know. And so and, why and is it? Sorry, gravitated towards them. And do you think that the mythology is what made people so motivated to make that myth true, uh, or how? Or do you think it was that you guys hired? A, a unique group of people with unique attributes? Like, how do you think you find that person who's so, so self-motivated and can stay sunny and be an upright daffodil instead of sort of, you know, a wilted fern? Um, I think that hiring is really, it's extremely, extremely important in taking the time, you know, and it is the most difficult thing because if we're open breakfast, lunch, and dinner, and for our GM to have time to interview is amazing because, She's just there 16 hours a day. But the importance of hiring the right person and to retain that right person, you have to you have to be patient. And I, I learned that at Uchi, and I think that Paul learned that at Uchi as well. We, we kind of grew up in management there together. Uh-huh. And, you know, there were times when the owners would sit in for host interviews and dishwasher interviews, you know, and, and there's this, like, there's this myth that you had to interview at Uchi seven times to get a job, and I'm sure that there are people that actually had interviews sometimes <laughs> to get a job, even to be a host, but it was really about staff retention and really kind of taking people through the gauntlet and, and seeing if they really wanted to do this or if this was just a fluttering thing in their life. And it's sad. It's, it's a weird thing because, you know, the restaurant industry is booming, and I feel like people want to hire great people, but sometimes you have to ask the right questions to see that someone can grow into that job. Because just like me, like, everybody falls into this industry. You know, there's very few um, schools in Texas and in the nation that are catered to hospitality. And and it's not something that you really kind of, you know, when you're in kindergarten, you don't say, like, oh, you're <laughs> so what, what do you think the most revealing question you can ask is when you're hiring someone? Um, I often ask things like, if I ask your former employer what they dislike most about you, what would they say? And you have to hope that they, it, they don't turn it into like that sunny positive, you know, the negative that's really <laughs> special. Um, yeah. And I, I think what that, I mean, I, for me, what that shows is that someone really has taken the time to figure out who they are or mm-hmm. is taking the time to figure out who they are and be aware of their faults. Because, you know, you always want to show, showcase yourself in your best light whenever you're interviewing. So everything is like super sunny and positive and amazing and I'm excited and I want this job and I'm the person for you. But you also like want a sense of realness and you want to know that this person has faults. So you can see what you can help them with as a manager, as a mentor in the future, you know. Right. I think that it's great to get a leg up on, um, you know, what the challenge or opportunity to help someone grow would be instead of tripping into it three months later. Like, oh, I didn't realize that you're actually, you know, afraid of numbers. Oops. Yeah. Uh, So you are definitely not afraid of studying because you took that master SOM test um, three three times, which frankly I've heard of people taking it so many more times, and you succeeded. So th- that alone is exceptional. But were you discouraged at all by not passing that first time? Oh my God, yes. Oh Lord, yes. It's uh, it was it was crushing. It was crushing. But I also I knew that I wasn't ready. Like I knew, and I think it was crushing because I knew going in that. 
I had not given myself the time to pass the theory portion of the exam. So I passed tasting and um, the service, the practical portion, mm -hmm. the first time in. And so, I knew, and I knew what puzzle piece was missing because I knew that I didn't sacrifice enough uh, time and effort for it. And it took two, like another time, it took two years to finally get that last piece of the puzzle. Wow. Um, it was really strenuous. How did you psych yourself into like taking it again and succeeding through it? Because I can imagine how defeating it is to, you know, not succeed and, and know that you could have done better? Oh, man. I mean, so I quit my job. <laughs> I, I actually, I, so I left he as the director of operations um, to be the beverage director for McGuire Mormon. I, I completely changed my my job title because as, as we grew, as I grew more into the industry, I realized that a smaller and smaller percentage of time was actually spent on a thing that I fell in love with, mm -hmm. which is beverages, wine. Um, and and it's, a, it's a great thing. It's, it's going to happen no matter what. And I think people need to realize that because you're never going to do the thing that you love 100% of the time. That's why you realize that you love it because you can't have it all the time. <laughs> <laughs> and um, it, was so, it was such a small part of my day that... I just kind of started looking around and, and you know, very quietly talking to um, Larry McGuire, who is the CEO of our company, um, about possibly becoming his beverage director. And, and it was a really long process. It was difficult. It was because I'm definitely the type of person who's ambitious enough to think that I'm going to retire at the job that I presently am every time, no matter what job. <laughs> this is a job for me forever. And so, it was, I mean, you know, I'm not a big crier, but I just remember just, like, getting really teared up whenever I finally made the decision um, to leave because I needed to refocus what I did on the day-to-day -day basis to be able to pass the exam because it was that important to me. And did you feel, once you passed the exam, that it made you better at your day-to-day -day job, or was it a credential that you're proud to have, but it didn't change your, your life and your business? Um, a little bit of both, honestly. I think that it definitely made me better in my day to day job because there's the confidence behind the post nominals, mm -hmm. right? It, it's uh, it's the confidence that um, there are many things that won't be questioned uh, because you have the post nominals. But I think that it's also important that you use that for yourself to know that you have to stay up on your shit because you have because people look up to you. You know, I have right. to. I have to study all the time. I have to definitely make sure that I'm still up to up to par on all of my knowledge whenever I'm training my staff because they expect me to. That's what those letters mean. Right. But as far as like what my job was, I think a lot of people think that once you get those letters, like something happens and. You quit your job and you get this better job and you like you know get this crazy pay raise and you're gonna buy a mercedes and become a partner <laughs> in a or whatever and it's totally not it i mean definitely there are there are success stories like that but you know i really feel like my success story is that i got to find a position that i already wanted to do post-nominals or not, not yeah. family diploma or not, I just, you know, I got to be proud of something that I did and, and use that certification to make myself better in the position that I already am. Right. Um, so 
on the show, I ask people to read a, a quote or a passage that inspires them. Is there something that inspires you? Yes, for sure. It's um, it's a it's a passage from um, that the famous commitment speech at Kenyon Colors by David Foster Wallace, um, called "This Is Water." Okay. And um, so, my favorite part is. The really important kind of freedom involves attention and awareness and discipline and effort and being able truly to care about other people and to sacrifice for them over and over in a myriad petty little unsexy ways every day. That's real freedom. That's being educated and understanding how to think. The alternative is unconsciousness, the default setting, the rat race, the constant knowing sense of having had and lost some infinite thing. The capital T truth is about life before death. That's it's like that's it, man. I, I, I <laughs> so feel like true. that should be the, the hospitality manifesto. That's <laughs> that. That is. It is. I it, mean, it's it's so great. He's so he's. I mean, he's one of my favorite writers. I love his train of thought, um, and it just makes you want to be a better person, but you also really know that it's really hard to, uh-huh. like, it's just about understanding that we are self-centered, we are who we are, so you have to really make the effort, and if you're not making the effort, then you're you're back to square one, which is not something that you, you know, you can't make the effort every day, but realizing when you are and when you aren't is kind of a big, a big thing. Well, and it's back to your, your theme here of self-awareness, uh, being so important. Let's talk about wine. Like we've talked about um, a lot of business, but you love wine. First of all, I love yeah. that you created a wine zine for your wine list um, at June's All Day. That just shows your enthusiasm and humor and the the joy that you bring. Tell me, what are your favorite wine regions right now? Oh, right now. I mean, it's so hard to pin down, but. Um just kind of all over the place. Um, I really love Burgundy. It's my first love. First wine region I ever went to in 2010 and have visited it four times um, since. So it's just, it's it's the hallmark. It's the icon. It's like the ungettable that changes your life. It's, <laughs> it's really expensive though. So you just, you got to get it while you can. <laughs> and is there, like, favorite accessible bottling? I mean, the thing about Burgundy is I feel like they're all inaccessible. They're all on allocation, the things that I would want. But for someone who wants a starter bottle of Burgundy, what do you recommend or what producer? I mean, I, I feel like just get the least expensive bottling of certain producers that are high-end um, because then it'll give you a great idea. It's really about the maker to me, not necessarily just Burgundy in general. Um, so, I mean, right now, I think someone who's just on the on the cusp of everything is David Ba. He just became the winemaker for Domaine Rouleau, um, but he has his own label. Demande oh. Um He used to make Camille Giroux. He's just, and he's like in his thirties, and just he's like young and vibrant. It's kind of like that. He's that new generation of Burgundian winemaker, and everything he touches is just so great. And he starts at like twenty dollars a bottle and goes into. Oh my god! I'm so sold. Many, many zeros. <laughs> I, so everything that he makes is just quality driven. He's super meticulous. He's wonderful. Okay. Um, a less expected region. I know you're interested in South Africa, New Zealand. Oh, my God. I love South Africa, yeah. I mean, one of my favorite um, 
regions of the smart land. It's really, really hot right now. Like, I mean, a lot of uh, wine nerds are super into it, and I think it's because it's a little bit of the wild, wild west in South Africa. Like, it's it's got this country vibe to it, and you can get high-end and you can get affordable wines. Um, two of my favorites are Eben Sadi and Adi Badenhorst. They're, like, neighbors across the street from each other, uh-huh. um, and they're just amazing. Adi's wines are super accessible, um, and they're, the quality of of wine that you get for the amount is amazing. And what is the it's price point of really South hard. African wine? I always thought that it was a little expensive and a little bit hard to find. Of which one? I thought some of the South African wines that are um, exported to the U.S. or imported in the U.S. are mm-hmm. a little on the expensive side and a little bit hard to find. Like, What type of price point are you looking at for those wines? So for Adi's wines, he's got a line called Secatoras, and you're looking at like $16 a bottle for a bottle of really delicious rosé. So it's really, really affordable. And then you can have the very allocated, nerdy, really breathtaking wines um, that Eben makes, and they're higher. (laughs) I mean, some of them can be in the $200 range, uh, but he makes so little of them. Okay, so we have a, we have one high, one low choice. Always mm-hmm. good. Um, and give me one other location you're in love with right now. Okay, I'm super in love with the Canary Islands, partly because I'm going there on my honeymoon. Hey, um, congratulations. You're getting married in a couple of weeks, right? Yeah, yeah. Memorial weekend, so I'm super excited. That's um, great. But no, those ones are so mad. And two producers that I love are... Um, Evanate and Suertes del Marquez. They're, they're just so great. And I just you never know. I never knew the quality level of those wines because they never left. Um, so they're just starting to get exported into the United States. And they're super interesting, indigenous grapes. But, I mean, I think bottom line, they're just flat out delicious. How hard is it to get the people of Austin in your restaurants or the tourists to try new wines easy hard i'd say it's easier than you would expect you know and it's again about like reading people but for the most part you know if you're in a very fun atmosphere people want to have fun and sometimes fun equals stepping out of your comfort zone so really about kind of like holding your hand out for them and and being their spotter uh-huh. um, i love that you're, you're, uh, you're just like allowing them to to try to figure out new things. And do you curate each list quite differently? Are there overlaps between all the lists you do? Do you are, do you have seven lists all together? We have seven lists all together. Um, there's a very, very little overlap. There's no overlap for lines by the glass ever. Wow. Um, we really want each list to be autonomous and to speak to the concept because we are concept-driven restaurants, um, and each restaurant is super, super unique. Um, we are going to do one wine by the glass. It's our private label wine that we'll launch in, um, in the end of the summer um, to kind of brand the, the wine list together. And then that's it. Everything else is really what speaks to the location. That must make your job even more fun. So I, yes. I love to ask the women on the show because I, I admire all of you to nominate another woman to the Hall of Dames. Is there a woman either in the wine business or in the 
food world that you'd like to nominate to the Speaking Broadly Hall of Dames? Oh, in the Hall of Dames, in the food world, my God. I mean, I just really, really love Jordan Salcido. She is the best. <laughs> I love Jordan. Are, are you nominating her for her Bellis Wines or for Ramona? Tell me, tell me why, Jordan. Um, I think just because she is so kind. She uh, honestly, because she is this persona, right? You know, you see her everywhere. She's got a really great following, but she is such a nerd. I really love it. <laughs> we we hold up in um, Aspen in a room together for our master sommelier um, exam for almost twenty four hours, and started st- like just kind of reviewing and studying and. She's just so great. She she personalizes everything with her touch, and I think she's pretty honest with herself, you know? And and I love it. And I think that there's so few people that what you see is what you get, and her persona is just a very, like, lovely human being, and that is who she is. And she really, truly has that many questions. Like, she asks so many questions whenever she's in the winemaker or when we're studying that it's, it's, a, it's a true love of wine. Well, that is a a great way to um, conclude this conversation on the wine nerd and Jordan, because coming up next, we're going to give away two tickets to people who are magazine nerds in just one second. But first, I just want to thank you, June, and um, I can't wait to see you and go drink some wine all day with you. Awesome. Thank you so much for having me. Take care. And now I'm going to welcome Amanda Dell. The two of us are going to give away tickets to um, a Foodieoticals event this weekend in New York City. So I love giving away things. I've never given away anything on this show before. And frankly, I never win anything. Like I've never like been that person who's won that random drawing. So I'm very happy to be the person controlling the random drawing and giving it away to somebody else. Um, Amanda, t- yes. tell me about the the food book fair. What is it? And I love the name Foodie Articles, of course. Uh, tell me what that is. Definitely. Hi, Dana. Thanks so much for letting me pop on. Um, we're we're so excited to tell everyone about Food Book Fair. Food Book Fair we has been lovingly referred to as the Coachella of writing about eating. It's kind of <laughs> somewhere in in between a festival and a conference. So we have some of the academic parts of a conference. We are doing an event called Food Book Fair School on Friday where our participants can kind of take a deep dive and go into breakout sessions where they can really learn from industry leaders. And then we also have kind of the fun festival part of our event, which is partnering with amazing chefs to do dinners and breakfasts inspired by their latest books or other media that we are loving right now and want to celebrate. So it, in some ways, it has that academic vibe of a conference, and in other ways, it has that, that fun of a festival. And I would say the biggest festival part is Foodie Articles. Um, it's, we are inspired by walk-around art, art book fairs at table, and so what we've done is given our, a chance to our, our favorite Foodie Articles, which is a portmanteau of Foodie of foodie and periodicals. So what we consider independent food magazines. 
So this one isn't for the quote-unquote glossies. This is for your cherry bombs. This is for your mouthfeel mags. This is for your put an egg on it. Um, so all of the makers will have a table, and everyone will get to walk around, meet them, buy magazines, get other cool magazine swag. And so that's what we're giving away two tickets to for our Sunday foodieoticals. That's so great. Having come from the, the glossy world, I always admired the, the creativity and the um, just sort of the immediacy of some of the that zine world. So I, what, what, tell me first, what is your favorite zine? Oh, Dana, that's like, that would be like if I had children picking my favorite child. Um, <laughs> well, you're stuck. Um, I... Uh, I'll give you some that um, I'm, I'm definitely. Or how about this? I'm, gonna I'm make looking it, forward to. I'm, I'm going to make it easy for I you. Will say, I will say this: Cherry Bomb is going to reveal and have their brand new issue with their new cover woman. So I'll say I'm particularly excited to see who's gracing the cover of Cherry Bomb. Okay, that's a good um, one. And what about <laughs> what about a zine that no one's ever heard of? Like, what should yeah. what should we know about that we don't know about? Maybe that's an easier question to answer. Definitely. Um, well, if you don't know about Put an Egg on It, that is definitely one of my favorites. And why? And, and why is that? Um, well, I think it has such a great combination of recipes, of stories, of um, throwing dinner parties and doing and taking photographs of that and providing a really unique perspective and a, a kind of casual vibe to entertaining, but still one that's, that's really fun. And also, I love it because of its size. Um, it's definitely a, a, on the smaller side, which means it's really great for traveling, and you can always just stick it in your bag. So I, I love that. Um, That's great. So here's yeah. here's what we're going to do to um, give these tickets away. Take okay. take a picture. Uh, we're going to ask listeners to uh-huh. to take a picture of their favorite. I think it's going to have to be just general food magazine, including zines, because maybe people aren't going to have a zine at home. And we, then we love, we love them all. You love them all. Okay, good. And then to tag um, on Instagram, tag Food Book Fair, and mm-hmm. tag Speaking Broadly, and you and I can do a random drawing of all those people who've tagged us, and then we'll get in touch. How does that sound? This sounds super fun. Okay. Um, always exciting to do things on the internet, and then maybe we'll get to meet in real life. Exactly. On Sunday. What a good idea. <laughs> so the, the the giveaway is for Sunday, and tell a little bit more of the details of the what they'll... Yeah, you can, um, on Sunday, you can choose to join us uh, at noon or 2 o'clock. We have two different entry times. Definitely, we, you know, we can be flexible there based on your schedule. And um, also the exciting thing about Sunday is that the... Recently, the Stephen Satterfield is going to be there celebrating his new issue of Short Stack featuring Peanuts, and he also has a beautiful new cookbook uh, coming out, Root to Leaf, and it's it's you know come through to see him. He's going to have some special peanuts that he brought all the way to New York, um, and you can congratulate him on winning a James Beard Award. So we're so excited to have him there on Sunday. So it's an extra bonus party. That's great. And then you we get got... to see all of the magazines that will be there as well. 
We'll have drinks. We have Brooklyn Brewery beer. It's a fun party. Okay. With, mag- with magazines. That- <laughs> That's great. Thank you so much, Amanda. And that, oh my gosh, thank you. That wraps up our show for today. Thank you, all you listeners of Speaking Broadly. You can find me, Dana Cowan, at FW Scout or Speaking Broadly on Instagram. Remember to post a picture of your favorite food periodical. Tag me, tag at Food Book Fair. And we'll see if you can win tickets this Sunday. I want to thank my engineer, David Tatashore, who's awesome. And uh, enjoy your week. And can't wait to be talking to you again next week. Bye-bye. for listening to heritage radio network food radio supported by you for our freshest content and to hear about exclusive events subscribe to our newsletter enter your email at the bottom of our website heritageradionetwork.org connect with us on facebook instagram and twitter at heritage underscore radio heritage radio network is a non-profit organization driving conversations to make the world a better fairer more delicious place And we couldn't do it without support from listeners like you. Want to be a part of the food world's most innovative community? Rate the shows you like, tell your friends, and please join our community by becoming a member. Just click on the beating heart at the top right of our homepage. Thanks for listening.